0: This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarro. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show on the gender biases facing men and the negative impact it actually has on all of us. Our phones are open and we'd love to have you join in the conversation. 1844 Wharton, that's 844-942-7866 and tell us, what does being a good man mean to you? And what are the biases that you think men are facing? Give us a call. We'd really love to hear from you. 1844 Wharton, that's 844-942 Seven eight six six. So I distinctly remember when I first became aware of feminism. Granted, it was a while ago. I was seven years old. And it was when the battle of the, the sexes, that iconic tennis match between Bobby Riggs and Billie Jean King, was playing out on television screens across the country. Her versus him us against them. It positioned women's advancement in, in that very potent symbol of a tennis game as a zero-sum match. She won, he lost. And in doing so, women were given an extraordinary role model for generations to come, but men were given this really unfortunate symbol of a man fundamentally diminished by a woman's success. Fast forward 45 years and that binary zero-sum model is still undermining our ability to move towards real equality, impeding the advancement of women and the well-being of men. Today's guest is going to help us see why all this matters so much and talk with us about how we can work together to free men from the biases that limit all of us in the long run. Once again, our phones are open, one 844 warton that's 844-942-7866, and we'd love to know from you. Who are the good men in your world? And what qualities, what characteristics do they embody? Um, give us a call. Tell us your stories. And in the meanwhile, I'd like to get, tell you a little bit about Josh Lebs. First of all, Josh, I think, now wins the award as the most frequent guest on Women at Work. We just adore him. He does a lot of amazing things. He's accomplished a lot. So this little bio is just the tip of the iceberg. Josh is an entrepreneur, former CNN and NPR journalist, and really the leading, gloating, Global expert on issues facing modern fathers in the workplace. He's the author of the award winning book All In How Our Work First Culture Fails Dads, Families, and Businesses, and How We Can Fix It Together. He now works with corporations, organizations, universities, and more to build policies that support men as equal caregivers, which is a crucial step towards ensuring equal career opportunities for women. The U.N. named him a global champion of gender equality, and the Financial Times named him one of the top 10 male feminists. Forbes even said that Lev's may be the one and only man to get corporations to rethink an anti-dad culture. And for me, he is one of our most enlightening and beloved guests. So, Josh, welcome back to Women at Work.
1: I am so happy to be back. Thank you for that introduction. And, you know, as soon as you started sharing the story, you got me thinking about how I first heard these terms, how I first learned about things like sexism and feminism. And I think for all the listeners, it's actually really interesting to think about those foundational moments and how we first approach those and how we can evolve our understandings of all of them. So
0: when did you first think about them?
1: Well, OK, so here's what popped into my mind. So you this might sound crazy, but do you know how I learned what sexism is? How? From from. My sister, when I was a little kid and we were watching a Scooby-Doo episode, <laughs> and th- these characters were in a boat and fell into the water, and so, like, the male characters go about, like, saving the female characters, and this female character, I must have been probably four, this female character um, was going, oh, my hairdo, and so my sister and I were laughing because we knew it was funny, but, like, my sister also turned to me, and she said, that's really funny, but you know it's sexist, right? She is so cool. Oh, I know. My sister was like, you know, brilliant and amazing. And so it became this moment when I was like, oh, because you know, you're a kid. You don't think about it. And so from then on, I always started noticing it differently and thinking about this stuff differently and seeing how there actually was sexism all around me in ways that I just took for granted.
0: So I never even thought to ask you this question, but as you started to see this stuff when you were so young... Did yeah. did you see it from afar, or did you ever think this is something I have the power to change?
1: Interesting. Um, the way I am, and this won't surprise you, I have always given myself the latitude to believe that if I work hard enough, I can change almost anything. Um, you know, like which we see out playing
0: it. out pretty positively.
1: <laughs> right. Well, I mean, but that's just it. You have to believe it in order to fight for it, right? So. But, I, you know, I was always like a little bit of a, a rebel. I mean, I would you know, like have there were moments in, in middle school when I went to see my teachers after school and yelled at them. And then they called at me to apologize, called <laughs> me to apologize because I was right. And they had been unfair to me. So I, I was always like careful about how I did it. And I tried to be strategic. But, yeah, I, I think there is something in me that led me to believe that it's OK to fight anything that's wrong.
0: When you were little and your sister started to open your eyes to this, did you feel like it was a zero sum game or did you see it as um, something that wasn't fair that could be corrected without hurting
1: you? Ah, So here's where things like lie and where where they, they come up to now. I didn't see it as being that because what I saw and what almost all the boys and girls I was growing up with saw is that to us gender equality was real uh boys and girls were equally smart equally capable in school we were all doing you know great things um and that goes all the way through childhood and through college when i went Mm -hmm. to yale and i was surrounded by these brilliant women we thought that we were going to go off into the world and have equal opportunities we we were in a bubble but most young people are so i didn't see it as a zero-sum game because i saw it as well we're in this enlightened era we are going to go out and have gender equality. And that's where my book and all this projects come from, because what happens is when you get to the workplace, and then especially if you have any caregiving responsibilities for anyone, including a child, that's when you, you run into the fact that you grew up on gender equality, mm-hmm. but the workplace was designed for madmen. <laughs> right.
0: right. Yeah. That our our free to be you and me childhoods didn't prepare us for what was still a workplace reality.
1: Yeah, it and the workplace didn't grow up. Right, <laughs> it didn't change. A big part of the, Right, it didn't it didn't change and you know, I've had to really dig into American history and the design of corporations and corporate identity in order to come to understand how this dichotomy came to exist because you would think we the free to be you and me generation would have changed it, but it is so stuck in its place that it takes a lot of work to transform the thinking behind the way we design our workplaces to match the belief in gender equality that we're supposed to have
0: now you've been working on changing this in a really concentrated way ever since you put out all-in um, yeah. and for listeners who are either new to the show or aren't familiar with your story just fill us in briefly what happened that prompted you to switch from being a fact checker and a journalist to really making this the, the focus of your work
1: Yeah, it's so interesting because I was was fact-checking on air at CNN, and as part of that, I had to learn how to look at studies and surveys and figure out which ones were real and which ones were not real, not based on real methodologies. And at that time, I became a dad, and when I started speaking openly and doing segments on TV about fatherhood, the way people responded was that they were shocked to see me and other dads speak openly on TV about caregiving and our struggles and our hopes and so that's when i came to see that the reality of fatherhood needed to be fact-checked and then <laughs> I, I love that this... <laughs> <laughs> people didn't know um and then there was this big switcheroo when i became the dad in the news because i took legal action um over a situation at time warner cnn time warner in which anyone could get 10 paid weeks except a biological father so suddenly my legal action became a story that other people were talking about, and so I had this whole new platform, and I ended up using it and writing the book. So that became a real you – know, it was a difficult time for my family, but you try to take anything bad and turn it into something good, so I used it as a springboard to fight for – for change. And Time Warner, CNN, they did dramatically overhaul their policy and and now this is part of the work I do with companies.
0: It's really tremendous work but it's also really interesting it's a lot of things, Jess, but it's really interesting for me right now to see that when you look at it with a little distance that you're working from two directions you've worked at the corporate level at the policy level to try and bring awareness to these organizations of how wrong the policies are and what they need to look like and you're still doing that work but you're also working, you're increasingly becoming this voice, I feel, of what a good modern man is.
1: Well, I appreciate that. Um, and this is where I have also, and you're right in the sense that I have broadened out beyond talking about fatherhood. Um, there, I keep finding that men are misunderstood and misrepresented in media. And there are all kinds of assumptions about men that um, are getting worse. (laughs) And so I do keep finding that now we're in the Trump era and the Me Too era. Um, I do keep finding that there are lots of misconceptions about men. And fortunately, I keep getting invited to write and speak and work on these programs and I always believe, you know, the, the best way to fight Trumpism is to be facts first. And it's true with everything. The best way to bring to build coalitions, to bring people together is facts first. And so I like to tell people that. I am actually much more typical of men than they realize. You know, <laughs> this... <laughs> most men are, are doing doing pretty well overall. And, and are fundamentally um, so not an exception.
0: decent, loving people. More yeah. to that point, you have a delightful and important thing on your website, and it's your dad facts. Um <sighs> And there's probably, I guess, like 15, 20 of them. Um, but yeah. I want to ask you about a couple of them. And if you I'm going to present them as the myth that you list them at and then talk to us about why these are myths and what's wrong with these myths being so pervasive. One sure. is that feminism is inherently anti-men.
1: Yeah. So it's so interesting. You um, we're talking about Feminism. You know, when I wrote my book and did all this work, I didn't know that it was feminist until my agent, a woman, a feminist, uh, (laughs) told me it is. And then after my book came out, the Financial Times did that thing where they named me one of the, you know, male feminists. And then I was invited to speak about feminism um, at Oxford to debate feminism at. The Oxford Student Union, which is the place in the world, especially (laughs) certainly in in the English language where you debate topics. So I had to delve into what feminism is. And I came to understand that by definition, feminism is about gender equality. So what that means is that if you are someone who is actually fighting for gender superiority, you're not feminist. So, you know, there are people out there with a Including women with a very strong distaste for feminism. Some of them think that feminism is saying that women are better than men, that men should be ignored. Um, anyone who says that is not feminist by definition.
0: Right. Um, and not it, understanding anything, the yeah. definition of it.
1: Yeah. If you're only feminist if you believe and stand for actual gender equality. And I, I think, you know, it's too bad that a lot of people don't understand that the feminists of the past century have delivered this giant gift not just to women, but to men. You know, the only reason I could fight for equal time as a caregiver, the only reason I can speak out publicly about being an equal caregiver as a man is that feminists Uh, most of whom were women, not all, but the vast majority, publicly women, um, fought for this. They weren't just fighting for equal rights for women at work. They were also fighting for the true feminists, equal opportunities for men to be caregivers and be emotional people and be healthy. And so this is a gift that we were given by generations of feminists. And so the idea that it's anti-male is just wrong by definition.
0: Right. And I love that you're bringing up these really important points of being caregivers and emotionally healthy. Like one of your other dad facts, the myth that most stay-at-home dads don't want to be stay-at-home dads. Clarify Uh, this for us.
1: Yeah. So all the numbers that you hear, um, almost all the numbers that you hear about dads are wrong. So there's a myth that dads are—huge numbers of dads are, are not living with their kids. That's not true. All this stuff. Um, There was one report that looked at bad numbers and said the vast majority of at-home dads don't really want to be there. They are just disabled or um, out of work. And the reason that people got that false message is that these people who did this study were not looking at at at-home dads. They were looking at men who have children and who made $0 0 cents in the past year. Well, just about every at-home parent in America makes some money at some point. Right. So if you're just going to look at people who make no money, you're going to get people who are in hospitals, in medical treatment programs, full-time students, um, people who are disabled. So that's who you look at. So, of course, the majority right. of them want to be working.
0: It's a, um, it was a faulty correlation.
1: Yes, Thank you for putting it that way. See, I need a professor for this stuff. Exactly. Faulty correlation. And so the truth is, when you look at the real numbers of at home dads, men who are taking care of their children during traditional work hours, et cetera, the overwhelming majority are doing so out of. Choice. They it's made by choice. Together with their families.
0: You're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest today is Josh Lev's, gender equality consultant and expert, and author of All In how our workforce culture fails dads, families, and businesses, and how we can fix it together. We'd love to hear from you if you want to give us a call. 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And tell us, are you a man who appreciates hearing Josh's facts? Is this reflecting your truth? Call us. Tell us your story. We'd love to hear from you. It's 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. So Josh, I love that That reframing, that men are actually choosing to be at-home dads. They care about being fathers. They enjoy it. And it has real value for their kids. Why isn't that that, that—why is it that we have such a hard time
1: believing that? Because we have maintained a culture—a cultural idea of men that is totally separate from the reality of men. One of the companies I do a lot of work with, uh, Dove Men Plus Care, did a global survey across five countries, and um, it was only 7% of men that recognized themselves in the media portrayals of what men are like. And you keep finding that all the time. 5%? 7%. 7%. That's still appalling. Oh, it's awful. And so it tells you that virtually all men say that the way men are represented in media does not accurately reflect what men are like and you see it come it comes from a stigma as well you know in lots of cultures around the world uh, people don't want to let on (laughs) what um, how much caregiving men are doing at home because there is still this old traditional idea that women are supposed to do everything so that it looks bad for women if word gets out that men are doing stuff at home. And we still have this madman control of the workplace. And this is where things get really tricky. The incredibly tiny percentage of men who do not prioritize their families, who spend little time with their families, they are the ones who become the CEOs. Right. There's a Harvard study that found this. And so they raise up the ranks, the very few men who are like them. So at work, Lots of men, the majority of men, don't want to let on how much they prioritize their families, and that maintains this backward idea.
0: Now, this can't just be a coincidence. So what is it that's happening within the organization that's elevating and escalating the men who are totally detached from family life? Um, Where is it playing out? Is it about time on task? Is it about networking, visibility?
1: It is about, you know how there's all these studies that show that people like to hire people who are like them? (laughs) Yeah. And and so this is why a lot of white men are more likely, you know, like if you're a white man who went to Penn, you might be more likely to hire a white man who went to Penn. Right, like take um, a look at the cabinet. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I we could talk about that all day.
0: Um, (laughs) Okay, but back to the workplace. (laughs) (laughs)
1: And and so what happens here is um, this vicious cycle, men who gave up all this time with their families they look around they say okay there's a guy who's doing what I did and in their minds that's what a good employee looks like and that's what
0: a noble hard-working effective employee works like
1: looks a like. man yes yeah. a man yeah and so I've found that you know how I was saying that facts are the key you know the first step mm-hmm. one thing I do with organizations is I show them data even from within their own company that The men who sit at their desks, the people who sit at their desks the most often are not the most productive generally and do not have the best results across a quarter or a month or a year. And when the bosses see that, it jolts them. It forces them to realize that they've just been looking subjectively for someone who's like them rather than looking for the best employees to to raise up the ranks.
0: Right. And we also know, which we talk about all the time, there's a whole host of other systems and practices that are channeling women away from those leadership roles. So it's also thinning the ranks of who's available for consideration.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and different forms of behavior that we think look good on a man and look bad on a woman. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you really dig into this, uh, what you find is that it's prejudice against everybody. Absolutely. In Chicago, this guy said that he had been turned down for jobs because he was told that he wasn't being assertive enough. And there was a woman he knew in his company who was told she was being too assertive, even though he was probably being more assertive than she was. (laughs) (laughs)
0: What are you seeing in the companies who have actually heeded the call and they're creating flex time, not just maternity leave, not just flex time for moms, but real flex time and family friendly policies across the organizations?
1: Right. Um, I'm sorry. So you're you're saying what's causing are
0: No. Are are you seeing changes
1: happening? Um, Yes, but too slowly. Okay. Uh, we, we're seeing changes happen, and it's happening this way. There is more pressure, fortunately, on companies these days to address their gender metrics. Um, for a while, it was about equal pay for equal work. That's really a false metric now because most places have achieved technical equal pay for equal work. But the problem is that women can't get the jobs. So, right, right. you know, like, yes, anyone who is the CFO gets paid this much money, but 1% of CFOs are. So, um, but, but as companies have, have started to look at this um, I've been out there with this message because I hear from companies all the time in every sector and they say really well meaning people. They say, we don't understand why we don't have more women at higher ranks. And I say, well, here's the question. Do you have paternity leave for men? And they say, what? No, no, no. This is about women. So I have to explain to companies that until you start treating men as equal caregivers, you will continue to push men to stay at work, which leaves women with no opportunity but to go home and do more caregiving. So we are seeing a change, yes. And many companies, the companies that are getting there are getting the message that you will not have better gender metrics overall in your company unless you make sure to tackle this other half of the issue, making sure you treat men As equal caregivers. But it's still a new concept to many places. And we have a long way to go.
0: Right. Because it's both new from a policy perspective. It's an expense for organization, but it's also reframing the way that we see men. So even if we've seen, okay, we've made that leap, the Billie Jean King leap, women should be, you know, on the court, in the game and may even win. Um, we still haven't found a way to connect, to integrate that idea of a successful man with being an involved caregiver.
1: Yeah. This is why we also need – look, culture change is all top down in organizations. Mm -hmm. So we need um, bosses to start being very open and public about their own caregiving responsibilities. And a lot of the places I speak, it's only after I go to this company and do a speech to all the employees that – one of the top men raises his hand and says what he's done all these years. And the people who work with him have no idea that he even has children or has special needs kids or is taking care of his mom or anything. Because men don't talk about it. Can we talk for
0: a minute about how to talk about it? Because I want to give you an example. And it's almost like um, a little kind of like scripting role play. But to to show people how to have these conversations, because I remember a colleague of mine talking about a male colleague. And the way it was expressed was, you know, he struts around the office and tells us he's leaving early to go pick up his daughter from school. If I did that, I'd get in trouble and get sidelined. And so... It's like, in practice, there's something about it that's backfiring. Could it be that it's more than just saying, I'm going to pick up my children, and maybe you should feel free to do the same? How can people talk about this so that they're not pressing those buttons?
1: Well, number one is, if you are ever sidelined in any way for acknowledging caregiving responsibilities, um, take action. Fight back. You know, in, yeah. in, in in my book and in my work, I list steps. So... If you see that happen, there are things you can do uh, because it it generally is a form of sexism, which is illegal in every workplace, no matter what the size um, across the whole country, even in right to work states. So if there is a a way in which you are punished for something like that, as a rule, there are steps you can take. And I always say, start off with the assumption of best intentions, try to work within. And if you can't, then, then take legal action. But As for the way to handle these conversations, um, it's really it's really important for the bosses to actively exist. As you're saying, bosses should actively encourage people to strike a real balance. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, men and women should be expected the norm. Should be an expectation that you will take your full paternity leave. And most men won't, a vast majority won't because they think they'll get fired because it does happen in some cases. So it should be the norm that you say, Oh, okay, your kids do in June. So then you're going to be off for these six weeks somewhere around here. Let's plan that. Um, and the same goes for when you have to leave to take care of, take your kids to the doctor or whatever it is. Um, you the, the boss should be saying, I absolutely go do this. And obviously everyone let me know if you ever, need to do the same. And if you ever um, do the same and someone gives you a hard time about it, you come tell me and I'll take care of this for you. And, And what I tell bosses and businesses all the time is that the more you do this, your attraction and retention rates shoot up. This is proven and it can cost tremendous sums to replace an employee. And men are leaving jobs even more than women to have more time with their families in this country. So there are powerful economic incentives aside from the the moral ones right. they have powerful economic <laughs> incentives to do this
0: <laughs> and it sounds like it's a combination of things like any culture change or any way of really helping people feel seen be heard and feel supported that it's a multi-pronged approach a, there's modeling it yourself, taking time out to be with your kids, taking your paternity leave, take, using your flex time. Then there's making it very clear that this is a norm that should be granted to everybody. And hearing your staff when they say, oh, my daughter's sick today. Do you need time to go to the doctor? Just let me know that yeah. it, there, it's multiple strategies that need to sit side by side, it seems, in order to make this really work.
1: Yeah, and also it's about um, understanding that they can take time away from their desks and still get their work done. And I'm telling you, it's that mental leap that, <laughs> that we were talking about before that is so big for a lot. I mean, I had a boss who couldn't stand when you walked away from your desk, and it made no sense because we would all end up working extra hours various times because we've got our work done. Exactly. Um, By the so way, we have to change that idea.
0: Yes, we're going to take a step away from our desk for a moment for a short break, <laughs> but we're going to be back. If you want to give us a call, we'd really love to hear from you. What have your experiences been incorporating your real life into the workplace, especially as caring, loving dads? Our phone number is one eight four four Wharton. That's eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. I'm Laura Zarrow here on Women at Work with Josh Lev's today, and we'll be back in just a minute. Give us a call. Stay tuned. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Here again is Laura Zaro. Welcome back to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how to help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. And my guest today is the amazing Josh Labs, a leading global expert on issues facing modern fathers in the workplace. He's the author of the award-winning book, All In, How Our Work-First Culture Fails Dads, Families, and Businesses, and How We Can Fix It Together. He is also, in more ways than I can easily count really I think a modern role model of a father a partner and a professional who gives us all something to aspire to and learn from so Josh welcome back to women at work
1: thank you And hey, (laughs) if I ever run for president I want you to introduce me at every speech
0: I'm yours I'm right there (laughs) so I know we're gonna we need to talk about Kavanaugh you and I haven't had a chance to talk about the hearings and um, but I want to start with a frame for it because it seemed to me there was a lot that came up. We could talk about a lot of it, and I'm game. But really, this question of what does it mean to be masculine, and what did we learn about our country in that dialogue?
1: Yeah. Wow. Um, look, <laughs> the the concept of masculinity was what a lot of people were trying to make this about, particularly among Republicans. They they thought that they could turn this into um, a macho moment to stand up for Trump's old-fashioned, never really was, an incredibly clueless and offensive vision of masculinity. Um, and the story that everyone missed is that they failed. You know, it, didn't, it didn't take – it didn't work. So they, they did manage to get the nomination through. But they thought that this Kavanaugh battle was going to win them all the support among male voters for the midterms, and it didn't. Men moved toward Democrats. But what you saw in the Kavanaugh hearing was a bunch of men who were too afraid to ask this alleged victim uh, questions. And so they brought in a woman, and they were being weak and hiding behind her. And then they saw that the testimony was disastrous. Uh, and they were admitting it. These reports were coming in. Even Trump said it was disastrous. So then they decided to go in this macho posing venture for the rest of it, just, you know, ditching the woman that they had brought in to ask questions and trying to act all chummy chummy with this guy. So while they did manage to just barely squeak by with the votes that they needed, with, and, you know, that was – I don't think the, the votes that they got had anything to do with their performance. They were trying to put on a show for America – and say, let's stand up for manhood. Uh, But what the surprising number of men and also large number of women all over the country saw uh, was that they weren't doing either. They were really failing on both fronts.
0: Well, in particular, the thing that left me aghast and frightened for our country, for the kids in this country, for the way that we establish norms as a culture, was the idea that this behavior was typical behavior engaged in by typical teenage
1: boys? Oh, exactly. I wrote about this for the Good Men Project. People can see it on my website, joshlevs.com. It boils down to this people who think they're standing up for men are often the most anti male sexist voices in this entire debate. There were men and there were women saying, oh, this thing that Kavanaugh's accused of doing, that's just what teenage boys do. No, it isn't. It really isn't.
0: It's not what civilized teenage boys do.
1: It's not. Look, and you know, there's just so much that they don't know. I mean, it's not the norm for a man uh, to do what he's accused him of doing, of, of, you know, putting his hand over her mouth, pinning her down, attempting to sexually assault her while her friend watches and laughs. That is not typical Teenage boy behavior. It's not something you condone. And it is a way of really trashing all boys and men to pretend that that kind of a horrific action in any context is ever acceptable. It's not that big a leap from Trump's big lie that what he was saying about, you know, grabbing women was just locker room talk. That's not locker room talk. Men don't talk like that. And men don't do that. The vast majority do not. So, yes, there is a talk about misunderstanding men. There is a huge set of misunderstandings in this country about what male behavior is really like. It is not that. That is not the norm.
0: So it it has two really damaging byproducts. So one is it's normalizing violence against women. And yeah. making it seem like this is just a rite of passage that men go through and women get over it. We're not taking you seriously because we need to protect these men's futures. Um, and then there's what that says to men about who you're supposed to be. How do men make sense of that messaging?
1: By, uh, It's up to men to be very loud um, in fighting back against that. Look, if if your instinct is to say that you just don't believe the accusations, then that's a conversation we can have. You know, the truth is, in America, we actually are much more capable of respecting the rights of an accuser and the rights of an accused at the same time. It's what our legal system already does. So people who say you have to choose one side or the other, they're crazy. But if that's your initial argument, that you don't believe the accusations, then let's have that conversation. This is what I tell people. But first make absolutely clear that you do not believe that this kind of behavior is okay and it is scary it's very scary to hear men in public life and women pretend that this kind of thing if it happened is acceptable it does indeed send a message to boys and men that it's acceptable that it's okay or that it's even expected so that's why another part of this just dystopian trumpist nightmare we're in (laughs)
0: yeah, because it's also making it seem as if because part of what played out in this was um, did do women are they asking for this? do they deserve this? I thought that these were grotesque expressions that we moved past 40 years ago, and there they were alive across national television and being supported. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, people make the, this big mistake of blending together issues. You know, like like I wrote something on Quora about how when 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 people complain about things like chivalry, like that is unfair to men. You know, mm-hmm. when people so there are ways in <laughs> which um, PC extremes can be unfair to men, absolutely. Um, but standing solidly one hundred percent against sexual assault in all its forms—that's not anti male, that's just pro ethics.
0: Right, <laughs> right.
1: You know what really turns this on its head? Um, is that people, like us, there's so much ignorance. People have no idea how many boys and men have been sexually assaulted, including by women. In fact, I have some of these stats too that I should probably read a new piece about it. But you know, the stereotype of men being raping each other in jail, it's actually women do that to each other more often, and of the Boys who have been raped in jail, a huge number of them were raped by female guards. There are fathers in this country who became fathers through rape and have no rights as a result of it. So, you know, when you start talking about things like that, um, it actually throws off the whole conversation and makes you start to realize that you, the way we're setting things up, we are only capable of seeing men as aggressors and women as victims. And we are sending this false message that you have to choose a team. It's like the duopoly of our political system. The suggestion that there are two teams. There are not two teams. You should stand for truth and justice always.
0: Right. And so I want to dive into this a little bit because this is, I think, a hugely important issue, is that not only – does it normalize sexual assault against women? It normalizes it in general, instead of saying that it's wrong across the board. And the we ha- I think men have a particularly hard time, um, or a uniquely hard time. Um, expressing that they've been victims of this stuff i mean you oh, yeah. did i thought an enormously brave thing for the listeners who aren't aware of it And you can probably still find it on soundcloud um, right after the Access hollywood tape aired um, you came on the show with sean harper and we talked about this stuff and you shared yeah. your own experience with us which i think you've been talking about more lately um do you mind yeah. telling our listeners what happened and also what you've learned from talking about this over the last couple of years
1: Sure, absolutely. You know, I mean, in a way, I'm lucky that I w- it wasn't a story of sexual assault, but I was sexually harassed by a woman at the start of my career. She had all the power in the situation. Um, and I, I wrote about this before Me Too. It was after I heard Megan Kelly talk about what happened with Roger Ailes, because so much of what she described was so similar to my experience in that um, she said if she had spoken out about this, she would have lost her big break. It was true for me, too, that there was no safe avenue for reporting. True for me, too. So um, I actually recently spoke about this with Tarana Burke, who was the founder of the Me Too movement 10 years ago before the Alyssa Milano tweet gave it you know, new life last mm-hmm. year. Um, and I said in this event, you can see the video on my site, but I, I said during this event that um, there are some people who don't want to hear men share their stories because they think that now is this precious moment um, in which we're talking about male violence against women um, and that we take something away from it. If we mention that a woman can be a perpetrator. And I said, I think that's ridiculous. We should, the more we all share our stories, the more the stigmas goes away. And I was happy that Tarana agreed with me. there She said, absolutely. It's ridiculous. So of course we should talk about this. So even though statistically it happens, you know, more often overall, that men do these things to women, Uh, in the workplace, men have the vast majority of the power. So most workplace incidents by far are about men doing this. But really, what it all comes down to is our essential humanity and understanding your power and not using your power to manipulate another person in a way that's wrong. And there are the extremes, you know, like rape, and there are the serious situations that are not of the physical extreme, but that do affect your career. And your life so really I see me too and this whole time that's an opportunity for all of us to get this out in the open and work together as one team to fix it
0: absolutely so talk to me about power Josh as a man in our society as a father how do you how do we help each other think about power in ways that are productive
1: yeah well, it's interesting you ask that because that's actually something new that I've started doing with businesses over like the past five, uh, six months um, is actually doing training about power. And, you know, I always try to look in a metaphorical mirror about this stuff as well. And I've realized in ways that don't involve sex or sexual harassment that. There were probably times when I was on air at CNN and I would be walking through a newsroom and someone would come up to me and say, hey, I have this idea for a segment you might want to do. And maybe I was in a rush to get somewhere. Like I don't have a specific thing in mind, but I can imagine – this might have happened and maybe I, w- I was rushing off to my next live shot and i would say something like oh you know what i'd never do that but thanks and then just walk away and what if that person had been so nervous because to them it's a big deal to approach an on-air <laughs> right. guy? you know what if they'd taken two weeks to get up the courage to talk to me and i blew them off so i realized that we don't train people to have a consciousness of their own power over someone else in the workplace and so there are times in which A man doesn't think of himself as having power over certain. Sometimes he does, does, but there are times in which he's not aware of that, and she is. And so a single experience becomes two very different experiences to them. A lot of it is about that consciousness of power.
0: Each one's looking at it through a different lens. You're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. Our phones are open if you want to give us a call, 1-844-WHARTON, that's 844-942-7866, and tell us how do you feel about power in the workplace and how did you learn to manage your own? Um, I'm your host, Laura Zaro, and my guest today is Josh Lebs, gender equality consultant and author of All In, How Our Work First Culture Fails Dads, Families, and Businesses, and How We Can Fix It Together. So, Josh, this idea of recognizing when we have power, um, if I try and bring some – apply it with some empathy, I'm wondering, is part of where um, people go wrong in the workplace, where they abuse their power, is that they're not – is there any – legitimacy to saying they don't understand the power that they have and that the things that they were taught as kind of normal or benign are really a lot worse than they've been led to believe?
1: Well, this is where you get to one of the biggest determinations of good people versus bad people, (laughs) (laughs) or people doing neutral versus bad things. So you have the Harvey Weinsteins uh, you know, and the Bill Cosbys and the Trumps and other people who who use their power knowingly right uh, like there's no manipulate. question
0: that it's conscious and purposeful and corrupt yeah
1: totally i mean you know it's deeply corrupt and then if you look at you know the description of Matt Lauer, for example i mean it's it would be completely blatant to him and anyone that he had power over you know this one woman in particular who he did something to um so in a lot of cases it's about choice but there are cases in which, and I've I've seen these, I've witnessed these, and I've talked with people at organizations about them, in which um, they just truly, the person who ended up being the subject of a complaint had no idea that the other person saw them as having power. And the person who saw them as having power thought they were like secretly sending some kind of like subtext sexual messages that they weren't. But if the person who had the power had realized that they had the power, they might have chosen different words to talk about the situation and, and what they were looking for. So, yes, there are, there are times in which unspoken communication makes a huge difference on this stuff. So I know people who were truly um, not trying to do anything wrong um, but said things and did things that made someone else uncomfortable and didn't understand why. And so there's also the element of being open to learn. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that that takes humility, which, unfortunately, we're not seeing any signs of humility in (laughs) in Washington right now. Um, And so it scares me for what kids are learning. But we as parents need to show a willingness to learn, a willingness to Open our minds. You know, honestly, that's one of the reasons I love talking with you because I learn all the time <laughs> from you. And learning is this uh, number one. Learn every day.
0: Absolutely, I feel the same way. So, somebody I learned a lot from about this very issue was Laura Liswood. and I'm not—I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she wrote. Yeah. Um, she led the Women's Council of World Leaders. Wrote a bunch of fabulous books. Um, I yeah. think she's a Goldman Sachs and ran their DNI um, practices early on. But she wrote this deceptively accessible, charming book called "The Loudest Duck." And what she does is she frames the discussion of um, the dominant and the minority group. And she tells this very funny story about an elephant and a mouse. And she said, if you're the elephant, you're the dominant group. You go wherever you want in the room and you don't think twice about it. But if you are the mouse, you have got to constantly be watching where that elephant is going so that it doesn't step on your tail. And so you become hyper-vigilant about protecting yourself in that environment while the elephant is blindly going forth. (laughs) And it reminds me of this, that sometimes it's not intentional, it's just ignorant or thoughtless.
1: Yeah. Um, And, you know, all these things that, like, workplaces do all this training on now, the, the number one thing that shapes almost every dynamic, every interaction you ever have is power. And we've always just taken that for granted. And it's time to stop doing that. Um, And so I think that's actually really interesting. Yeah, I love (laughs) that example, because it's so clear when you put it that way.
0: Right. It's like the Um, elephant's not fundamentally bad, but isn't seeing the mouse. Um, (laughs) So let me ask you, as we're trying to raise good men, you know, not just build workplace culture, but starting with our sons, starting with the kids in our schools, how do we help the dominant people? become aware of those they're not seeing
1: oh interesting how do we raise people to be aware like that yeah okay so this is why this is where everything comes full circle i tell groups all over the world this i say i don't care if you're gonna have kids or not have kids no matter who you are if you want gender equality to happen support paid family leave support paternity leave that men are expected to take now, here's why it actually does answer. It might sound like I just jumped to the side, but here's why it answers your question. Kids learn from what they see you do more mm-hmm. than what you tell them. And I know it's unfortunate.
0: Find- I was kind of hoping I could just package the stuff I tell my daughter and she doesn't look at what I do. <laughs> but it doesn't work that way.
1: Uh, tell me. It's tough, isn't it? Like. <laughs> When you stop and think, you're like, oh, I teach my kid not to do that. But then I did
0: it. I know. I was telling her about trying to have good manners while I'm eating string beans out of the plate with my fingers. It's like, you know.
1: Uh, (laughs) Oh, yeah. I know. I know. Or like, you know, don't snap at people. Don't get all upset. And then you snap at them. You're like, what's wrong with me?
0: Exactly. Uh, But this also plays out in these big ways with how do we model our work lives for them, apparently.
1: So here's the thing. So kids need to physically see it. And what you find is in the societies that have created these things called daddy quotas, which got rid of the stigmas and basically made it like very, very, very common, like the norm for men to take paternity leave. It had broad societal effects. And the reason is that kids from day one, uh, see men and women as equally capable at work and at home through actual experience. And, you know, when they grow up, seeing that dad can take care of them as well as my it's also shown that when men have this time at home from the very beginning they're more confident um, about it in general and throughout the kids entire life all the way like there's eight longitudinal studies for 18 years that show you get a better balance at home so being home and modeling these things is important and then let's extend that to what you're talking about here which is making sure to notice uh, the invisible you know Kids have a natural curiosity about other kids, and it's cool to talk with them about that. I've heard some research about how some parents think that they are destigmatizing race by not talking about it. You know, by like if the kid refers to someone as being brown or whatever, and the parent is like, "Well, skin color doesn't matter." Um, this is the research I heard about. Was it that that's actually bad? It stigmatizes it because kids start to notice that you'll talk about anything except skin color, which is weird to them. So all these things are actually opportunities when kids notice other kids' behaviors or mention things about other kids or want to talk about other kids, it's a great time to say, well, what, what do you think their lives are like? Or, you know, here's some, here's some history. Here's some stuff of what's happened in the past. What do you think could be done? And I think the more that we do that, the more we tap into their curiosity, uh, the more we tackle this and it's something so, that i know from unique experience from talking to my kids about you know like news stories and bad stuff in the news
0: so for example when um we'd moved to connecticut and we were, had been living in south philly before then and we had been there maybe a week and my daughter turned to me she was all six years old and she goes mommy there are no brown people here yeah and in that moment um and i didn't tell her we don't talk about it but i think i said yeah i haven't seen any either but that i missed An opportunity to talk to her about, so how do you think that makes the one brown person we did see feel? Yeah. And to use her own language, but to use it to open, to use it as an opportunity to talk about how do we see the people that nobody else is seeing? And what does it feel like to be an outsider?
1: Yeah, you know, this is why I also um, liked it, even though he didn't, when my oldest kid had one year where he was the only observant Jewish kid in the class. He was the only kid who uh, took off for Rosh Hashanah. Yeah. Um, and uh, he, he, he just – his personality, he just didn't want to be different. He didn't want to say that I was different. Um, but I was glad because I want him to know what it's like to see that. And then we have this book called The Only One Club, which is about how every kid has something that's just them. And I teach my kids all the time how they think – That whatever they're going through they're the only one who's going through it but all kids think that and when you become adults you end up sharing these stories and realizing the commonalities and how it's very isolating and so like when they have moments when they feel different i want them to know that there are people all the time who are feeling that in different ways and to be the kids who have empathy for that and awareness and watch out and i you know the best thing i could do is to model it myself by having them see me interact with people differently and listen and try to learn about and, and respect people in different situations, with different jobs. And I'm not always perfect about it, but I think the more that I do it and talk openly about it, the more that they're going to get that lesson.
0: And show that you're not frightened to give language, to, to build a vocabulary that lets you talk about differences, because it's actually the way that you bring people closer together.
1: Right. And to, and to talk about... Um, You know, for me, it's also to talk about facts, you know, like I I want my kids (laughs) to be strong and vociferous about about fighting. You know, like I was telling the oldest one the other day about how when I say things that are true that some people don't want to hear, you know, like Trump and the Trumpists don't want to hear it. I, I say, you know. It's not like the story of Moses was that he went to Pharaoh and said, Well, it's my opinion that you should let my people go. However, I know other people have other opinions and I don't (laughs) wanna offend anyone. I'm just gonna tell you my opinion. I think we should I say, No, if if something is obviously right and just, then stand up and you know, and say so and say so for the people who can't and make sure that you're learning and feeling. Um, but say so for the people who can't. And, you know, I hope that, that my kid, you know, look, when my daughter was born, I did end up having to go back to work because I couldn't get that time off. But I've, my kids know that I fought and I fought, obviously not for me because I wasn't going to get that time, but for other families that didn't have a voice. And they know that as a result, things did change. So I'm hoping that. That inspires them to be aware of the people who are having problems that you you don't know about until you're open about yours
0: and that they, they see that their voices has an their voice can have an impact on other people
1: yeah and that that they can have an impact on other people and that you don't know what someone else is going through and that you have to be open to learning and imagining and give people the presumption of best intentions and in their behaviors and then when something is wrong being unafraid to just stand up and, and say, look, be good to this person, you know, and to stand <laughs> up for yourself. But I think all these things are about being the best person you can be. And Man, I hope my kids learn it. They give me hope. (laughs) Well, Josh, you're helping
0: all of us learn it. Um, You're the one standing up, being that voice for organizations and for individuals. I'm I'm expecting that our listeners out there would like to learn more about the work that you're doing and where they Mm. can get in touch with you, find out, read stuff, not to mention those fabulous dad facts, the dad myths. Um, So where should they look if they're going to find you?
1: Yeah, go and come to my website, joshlevs.com. It's J-O-S-H-L-E-V, like Victor, S, like Sam, joshlevs.com. And that'll link you to all of my social feeds as well. There's lots of information, lots of fun videos, speeches, recordings, (laughs) anything you could want that should give you a really strong sense of uh, the kind of work I do these days.
0: Yeah, Josh, we are grateful for the work that you do. We're grateful you join us on Women at Work whenever we call. So thank you so
1: much. Oh, thank you. And thank you for everything you do.
0: Oh, of course. And thank you all of you for joining us today. If you have a question about anything you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at seriousxm.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at bizradio132 and find me at Laura Zarrow. I would also like, as always, to thank my beloved producer, Patty Hall, Michelle Abramov from Morton People Analytics, who helps us out in all kinds of ways, and my sound engineer, Jeff Simmons. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you have been listening to Women at Work here on XM's Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, everybody. Because every day there's something to survive And yes, it's unbelievable When there's nothing left to hurt inside and we'll shine. Yes, we'll shine. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.